And now Danny's gonna come and bring our Easter service and let's give it up for Danny. <laughs> Good morning. Happy Easter. You know, I was tickled hearing Penny uh, do the traditional greeting. You know, he is risen, and, and those who grew up in the church knew the traditional response. He is risen indeed. But the, uh, the first Easter that I was celebrating, because I didn't grow up in a church, this is in 1972, no one let me in on the secret handshakes or the appropriate responses. And I remember that the pastor comes out on Easter Sunday, he said, he is risen, and I was sitting towards the front, and I said, cool, and, and everyone sort of looked at me, and you know, I realized I had some things to learn, so I, I appreciate those of you who didn't grow up in the church and were wondering, is there other things that I don't know? Well, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. I ask the Lord to be here with us and uh, just reveal himself to us in special ways today. Father, we thank you for this day. What, what a, a joy it is any time to, to worship you, but particularly, Lord, today to be able to set our focus on, on not only who you are, but what you've done, and the fact that all that you've done was really underlined by your resurrection, that you gave evidence that what you said, what you did, you were able to follow through on because even death cannot hold you. So we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to look this morning uh, at the resurrection, but we're going to look at a, a very significant passage that took place very soon after the resurrection. I've entitled my talk today, uh, Gone Fishing. Uh, we have any fishermen and women here today? Anyone like to fish? We have quite a few. Well, the, really, we're going to talk about a, a story that really is sort of s surrounding this issue of going fishing. And I, I want you to know, I, I know something about fishing. I, I know that I'm lousy at it, and for that reason, I don't like it at all. And for some reason, God saw fit to have me marry someone who is an extraordinarily good fisherman. Penny is a great fisher person. I think we have a slide here. You know, Penny throws a hook in. She doesn't have to bait the hook. She throws it in. The fish just, you know, bite it, call their friends over it. She's able to catch fish in the bathtub. I mean, Penny is a great fisher person. It totally intimidates me. And what makes matters worse is Penny has now gotten our grandchildren involved in fishing. I think we have a couple of, of slides. There's Emerson when he was younger, and, and uh, Julian, you can go ahead, Julian does well. And it, it, like I said, it makes me feel so insecure and so insignificant when my grandkids, Penny, everyone else can throw a hook in and just reels it in. I do it nothing. And for the last 40-some years, 41 years that we've been married, Penny constantly is saying, Danny, I found the best place. I promise even you will be able to catch fish here. Just come with me. I'll go. She'll be reeling in the fish, and I will just be getting tangled. I'll be reeling in rock, you know, rocks, not rocks, logs, and boots, and you know, seaweed. I don't do fishing well. And because of that, it, it consistently taps into my various insecurities. 
you know, I, I, I picture as I walk up to any body of water with my rod in hand that there are schools of fish that are laughing so hard they're just holding their gills. They're just laughing so hard, saying, oh, look, he's trying it again. So, but that's all beside the point. Today we're going to look at a passage that really surrounds this topic of fishing, this issue of, of fishing. Uh, we're, so we'll be talking about fishing today. We're going to be talking about how we do find significance, how we do find security and a sense of safety and a sense of, of identity and peace. And we are going to be talking about why we have good cause today to be celebrating the resurrection as well. Now, the passage we're going to look at is in John chapter 21. If you brought your Bibles today, you could look and follow along in your Bibles. If you didn't, we'll have the verses on the screen. But in John chapter 21, uh, we find that there's a, a passage here that deals with fishing, and it's probably, at the, it's probably the most significant and, and substantial crisis that was faced by Jesus, the disciples, concerning the mission and the, the ministry of Jesus. It doesn't look that way at first blush when we read these verses, but we'll see today why these verses uh, brought such a crisis to that, the mission and ministry of Jesus. So let's just jump right in. This uh, takes place very soon after the resurrection. You remember just to set the scene, Jesus was resurrected. He, you know, he died on the cross, buried, and on the third day he came back to life. He initially appeared to Mary and some women and revealed himself as the resurrected Christ to them. Soon after that, very soon after that, the disciples were still hiding. The twelve were hiding in a, in a room locked the door because they were concerned that they were, they were next. They were the next ones to be arrested and, and, uh, and uh, killed. So they were hiding away. Jesus comes and he reveals himself to the... Not all the disciples were there. Most of them were there. He reveals himself to the disciples, passing right through the, the wall into this, this room. He had his, his... Apparently he had this, his resurrected body. I don't know if he was glowing or, or had halos or whatever, but he was in this, this, this risen body. Soon after that, he revealed himself to Thomas a story that you might be familiar with where Thomas, in order to, to be sure that it was really Jesus, put his, his fingers in, into the wounds. He appeared to Thomas because Thomas wasn't there when he went to that, that special room where they were hiding, and he wanted to make sure Thomas knew he really was alive. The passage that we're picking up with today in John chapter 21 is the next event after the resurrection. It says this in verse 1. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples besides, beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two other disciples. And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come with you, they all said. So they went out into the boat, but they caught nothing all night. And at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. Uh, put, that, put that picture up. The, you know, th this is you know, probably a fairly typical 
kind of, and size boat that the disciples were using. And at first blush, when you read this passage, it doesn't seem all that significant. But this is one of the few passages in the Scriptures where being able to look into the original language that, that the Bible was written, which was, was Kone Greek, the common Greek of the day, it gives us incredible insight into why this was a huge crisis that was taking place when Peter and then the other five individual disciples said, we're all going to go fishing. Because the two words, the Greek words, that were translated, I'm going fishing, are the two Greek words, hupago and haleulo. And these two words are in the, uh, the, present in, uh, the present infinitive tense. And essentially all that means, let me bring it down, all that means is that in this tense, it's speaking of an action that is habitual. Something that is going to take place and then continue into the future. You see, Peter wasn't just saying, hey guys, I'm going to go out and catch some breakfast, get, get some fish for, for our meals today. Peter wasn't just saying, listen, I, you know, I'm going to stretch my legs and I, I, think, I think I'm going to just take the boat out tonight and, and catch a few fish to, to maybe sell for, uh, for supplies. What Peter was saying, if we were to translate it properly and literally, Peter was saying, I'm going back to being a fisherman. Peter was essentially, at this moment, and then followed by five others, he was resigning as a, an apostle. He was saying, I'm going to return to the former my former vocation, my former job that I had. I'm turning in my apostle's badge. I'm not going to continue as an apostle. I'm going to continue and become once again, a fisherman. So you could see why this was a potential major crisis that within probably 24, 48 hours after Jesus, after his death and burial and, and resurrection, over half of the apostles were returning to their former vocation and in essence saying we are not going to continue in this assignment, in this job, in this, this, this responsibility, this ministry of, of Jesus is that now he's, he's handed over to us. Now, there are probably, I believe, two major reasons, and we're going to explore these today. There are two major reasons why Peter was going fishing. Why Peter was, was turning in his, his responsibility as an apostle. And I, I think it, it, it's something that I can relate to. And maybe many of you could relate to as well. Recognize this. For three years, Jesus traveled with the twelve. He traveled with the apostles. Where he went, they went. He had called them to be his disciples. They were part of that school of discipleship that didn't just go to class in the mornings and had the rest of the day to themselves. Disciples in the first century, a disciple of a rabbi would live with the rabbi, would go where the rabbi goes, would watch him in his daily chores during the day, would eat with him. And that was true for three years. These 12 individuals 
traveled with Jesus, they listened to Jesus, they were taught by Jesus, they watched Jesus, they ate with Jesus, they saw how Jesus interacted with others, they would sleep under the trees with Jesus. He was just very available. And I'm sure it was just an incredibly, incredibly wonderful time. I mean, have you ever thought when you're reading the Gospels, it would have been wonderful to see and be with Jesus in the flesh. To be able to at any point just say, Jesus, come here. Let me ask you about this. I don't understand that. Why did you do this? I'm feeling this way. What do you think? What should I do here? Jesus was constantly with them. They were constantly with Jesus. And it was a great source of of security. It was a great source of of identity also. A great source of, of significance. I mean, they were part of Rabbi Jesus's school of discipleship. You know, there were other individuals who were followers and disciples of other rabbis in the first century, but they were Jesus's rabbi. When Jesus would walk into a temple and these 12 rough, ragged-looking guys came with him and, and people at the temple would look at him like, who, who are you? All they had to do is say, I'm with him. It gave them significance. It gave them a place. It helped them to understand who we are, and it was constantly being reinforced because they indeed were with Jesus constantly. When they stumbled, when they made mistakes, even then Jesus was with them. He could rescue them. He could help them. He could instruct them what they did wrong and what they needed to do right. But all of a sudden, I want you to understand this, all of a sudden, things began to change very, very quickly. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he gathered the twelve together. Remember the, the, the Last Supper in the upper room? He gathered the twelve together, and he began to tell them, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be taken away. And Peter, particularly, would have none of it. Remember that interaction in the upper room? Jesus was beginning to talk about what was forthcoming, that he was going to be delivered over to the authorities, that he was going to have to go away, that he was going to return to the Father in heaven. And the disciples didn't understand completely what he was talking about, but I'm sure something was sinking in, and that is what they were comfortable with, the the connection to God who had become man, who was present for them, who was able to be touched and heard and and seen, that was changing. And I believe that was the core of why all of a sudden Peter is saying, I I don't like this change. Yes, Jesus came and appeared to us in the upper, when we were hiding away in the room, he sort of made a, a cameo appearance, but it just wasn't the same. He sort of appeared and then he disappeared. He comes and he goes. He, he doesn't even look the same. You know, who's this? He's glowing. It's not, the, it's not like it was. And there's that sense that there's, there's just this separation. He's not ever present. He wasn't there uh, in their insecurities. And Peter was, was feeling, I am sure, rather vulnerable and rather insecure and, and just losing a sense of who am I and what am I for? And as I said, I can totally relate to this. 
Because I, I love reading the Gospels. I love hearing the, the Gospel stories and, and imagining what it would have been like to, to sit there with Jesus, to, to listen to Him sitting down on the, on the side of that mountain as he, as he spoke. I can imagine what it was like watching Jesus as He healed individuals, listening to Jesus as He was expounding on, on how to, to live with God and before God. But like Peter... I don't have a reference point for a, an, an invisible God. I don't have a reference point for a supernatural God, for a God who is, who is everywhere, for a God who is invisible, yet present, but invisible. I don't have a reference point for heaven and, and hell. I, I've often thought that if, if, if God had asked me, I'd have told him, and he didn't ask me, that it, it would have been far wiser if somehow we could all start in heaven, and then come to earth. Because then we would have a reference point for a God who is an in invisible, for a, a, what heaven is like and what an infinite, all-knowing, all-ever-present uh, God is like. So Peter found this great insecurity rise up with him. He lost any sense of confidence that he was going to be able to fulfill the purposes that God had for him. So what Peter did, and what we often do, is we go fishing. Peter literally went fishing because that's what he knew how to do well. You get it? That's what he knew he was competent in. He went fishing because that's what he knew all about. He knew how to catch fish. He didn't know how to be a fisher of men, even though that was his assignment. He didn't know how to do the works of Jesus. He didn't have any confidence that he was going to be able to fulfill the, the ministry of Jesus and the mission of Jesus that was passed on like a baton in a relay race to Peter and the disciples. So oftentimes for myself, and oftentimes maybe you can relate to this, when we lack a sense of, of who we are and why we are, we lack a sense of confidence, a sense of, of security, we go to those areas where we feel competent. We bury ourselves in work because at least that gives me a sense of, of accomplishment. I, 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 my job gives me my sense of identity and value and, and purpose. Or, or fixing cars or golfing or, or ministry, you know, well, I can do ministry and I'll, I'll sink myself in that. Or, or family or some particular relationship. We all look to find a sense of our security, our sense of identity in areas that we are comfortable with so that we can avoid being at risk. And I believe that's what was going on with Peter. Peter said, I don't have any confidence that I'm going to be able to be a, a, even an average apostle. And I don't like the fact that Jesus isn't here in the flesh like he used to be. So he went fishing. And we do that as well. We may not be going fishing literally, but we start fishing in this world for something that will give us a sense of self. You follow me? We start fishing for things in this life, in this world, that will help us to have a sense of security. And Peter not only worried that he wouldn't uh, uh, fulfill the purposes that God had for him, 
find his significance in the fact that God had called him, God was with him, God had, was going to give him the spirit within to accomplish those tasks, he worried also that he perhaps had already disqualified himself. Because remember that night where Jesus was saying, I'm going I'm to be delivered over to the uh, hands of, of others. I'm going to die. I'm not going to be with you. What, what did Peter do? Peter jumped up and basically said, I'll stay with you, Jesus. I'll protect you. I'm not going to let that happen. May it never be. No way. And Jesus essentially said, yes way. And Peter said, no, I, I'll be there with you. And, Pe and Jesus said, no, Peter, even you. He said, before the cock crows three times, you'll have to, or before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said, no, Jesus, I'll never deny you. I, I won't deny you. He had this boldness because he was used to Jesus being there and bolstering him up. But you know the story. What happens after Jesus was, was arrested? Indeed, three times. Weren't you one of those followers of Jesus? No, no, not me. I Wait, no, I, I think I saw you as a, one of his disciples. No, I don't even know the guy. I, who are you talking about? Jesus who? Three times Peter denied that he was a follower of Christ and that he even knew Christ. And all of a sudden, he realized Jesus hasn't been with us for, for less than three or four days and already I'm failing. Already I'm, my, my, my ability to follow and be who he wants me to be and who he's called me to be is totally unraveling. So not only did he feel that there was this sense of inability to take on the the ministry and the calling of Jesus, he was carrying significant guilt and shame and fear, I'm sure, of failure. And so how did he respond? I'm going back to be a fisherman. So how did Jesus respond to this crisis? These 12 men who were called by Jesus to spread the gospel throughout the entire world, within three or four days, he had lost Judas, who betrayed him, and now he lost another six or five, uh, no, six, including Peter, who were returning to their former vocation. How did Jesus respond? Well, let's continue. John 21, verse 5, it says, He called out, this Jesus standing on the shore, the disciples uh, were, were in the boat. Put the next picture of that boat up, Laurie. Disciples were out in the boat. They had fished all night. He called out and said, Fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. And he said, Throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so, so many fish in it. What Jesus does, he comes along. They don't recognize still that it's Jesus, but he comes along after they had fished the entire night and, not, and caught no fish. 
that was a virtual impossibility. Because again, they weren't fishing with rods and reels. They were fishing with nets. They'd throw a net in much like that and just begin to pull it back and forth through the Sea of Galilee. Can you imagine catching not one fish having done that the entire night? It just These were professional fishermen. Ne they couldn't ex explain it. And, and Jesus comes along, stands on the shore. Hey guys, catch anything? He wasn't just trying to be mean-spirited. Jesus wasn't trying to humiliate them. Jesus was wanting them to learn an incredibly necessary and valuable lesson for anyone who wants to follow God. He was teaching them a lesson that he wants us to learn continually and remember continually. And that is that he is the source. Jesus is the source. God is our source of identity and value and worth and security. Not anything that this world offers. So he asked them a question he already knew the answer for. I mean, it was probably felt like a zinger. You know, guys, you know, you've been fishing for eight or nine hours. Catch anything? I imagine the, the angels in heaven were thinking, ooh, that hurts. You know, I mean, a couple of angels are, you know, fish, you know, bumping or fist bumping each other. But he did it because he wanted them to understand. You don't find identity and security from the things of this world. Because it's fleeting. It's temporal. It won't last. So have you caught any fish? No, we haven't. He wasn't just hitting below the belt. But he wanted them to understand that only God is the source of where we find our identity and our value and our purpose. Our significance. I mean, he knew they didn't catch fish. He probably, Jesus had to spend most of the night just keeping the fish out of the net. Hey, flounder, get away from there. You, go back, back off. Go away. It's not easy to pull a net back and forth through the Sea of Galilee and catch nothing. But after he hears and after they have to reflect and realize, we thought this was going to be the job we would return to to give us some security, some significance in life, that they didn't catch any fish, then he, he says, why don't you just throw the net off on the other side of the boat? As if there's some big glass wall in, within the boat where they can only catch on one side and there's no fish on the other side. But they go ahead, do what he says, still not fully understanding who it was, throw the net over the other side and catch this major mess of fish. Now, immediately, what happens? They begin to recognize who it is. They, they, it begins to dawn on them. But what, what I want us to understand at this point is how easy it is for us to go fishing. Maybe not literally, but how easy it is for us to look for things in this world that is offered down here on earth to try to find that sense of peace. What do we look at? What are we moving towards to give us a sense that my life has significance out of this world? You know, I, 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 over the years, I've married lots and lots of people. And inevitably, as, as I talk to young couples getting married, 
you know, they're, they're always talking as though I'm going to find my life, my fulfillment, and all that I need when I get married because this other individual is going to give it to me. And both the husband and the wife are assuming that. But it doesn't take long. I mean, love might be blind, but marriage opens your eyes real quick to realize that we cannot, in the best of marriages, find life through another human being. You can't just you know, stick a straw in some other human being and suck out life. And life itself shows us that other people and marriage won't provide life. It's not something that's able to be provided by the things of this world. It's provided by Christ. And when we begin to, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when we begin to find ourselves receiving life from Christ and from our connection to Him, then we can have healthy relationships where we're not trying to, you know, and having the straw collapse and we're trying to, you know, to find life from a human being or, 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 or from our, our, our children. You know, how many people do you know, perhaps the person you saw in the mirror this morning, who is trying to find life from your career, climbing that ladder, gaining a little success, being seen as significant. I am something because look at my job. I am something because look at my salary. I am something because I am good at what I do. But it can vanish. It could slip through our fingers quickly. We could lose a job or there's always somebody who is a little bit above us who doesn't deserve it ever. And we're always challenged. Life will challenge us because security is not secured through things of this world. We find identity or security or peace or our hope through possessions. Think if I had enough stuff. If I could just get that new house or that new car or that new TV or whatever it is, then I could feel like I've arrived. You know, I, I have a friend in, uh, from high school, a friend in New York. He and his wife I went to school with. They won the New York State Lottery. They won $186 million. This is, this is about, probably about 10, 12 years ago now. And I remember he called me up and he, uh, after he won the lottery because he and his, his wife had never had a church wedding. They said, Danny, we understand you're a pastor. We'd love to have you come and do a wedding for us. We want to do a real wedding. So I went out there and I mean, they had money. I, he's a generous guy. He, he and his wife paid for the... Uh, the walk-in freezer and refrigerator we have here for our food pantry. But in, in talking to him, I remember when we were talking on the phone, he said, I asked him, I said, so is this money going to change you? And he said, oh, no, it's not going to change us at all. Although we did go and buy a mansion last week. <laughs> and they did. I mean, this I mean, it was indoor pool, outdoor pool, wine cellar. It was amazing. But what I've, I talk to him maybe once or twice a year now on the phone, it's clear to his credit that he sees the money and the stuff that he can acquire doesn't give him life. He still deals with the same kind of stuff we deal with. That there's always something that's breaking. Or there's always something that's not quite enough. There's always something that he wants. There's not the ability to find life peace, identity, and security from the things of this world. 
Someone once said to me, well, Danny, you, you're a pastor. You know, you're, you're the senior pastor of a nice church. You don't deal with insecurity. You don't understand what it's like. Baloney! You know, pastors, we're some of the most insecure people in the entire world. I mean, you go to a pastor's conference, it's like going to a meeting of, you know, Neurotics Anonymous. <laughs> you, know, we're, you know, we're walking around, you know, uh, how, how big's your church? You know, how, how many people can you hold? What's your square footage? How many buses do you have for Sunday school? I mean, it's just the most neurotic, insecure thing you could imagine. You know, I, I, every week I know that everybody is leaving and the first thing they probably ask each other as they climb in their car and drive home is, so what do you think? You know, and I'm saying, oh no. <laughs> Security doesn't come from things that this world can provide. And Jesus wanted to make sure that the disciples understood that because it hooked Peter. He was needing that security and he assumed Jesus is resurrected now. He's going. I don't know how to find out who I am, so I'm going fishing. And we do the same thing. And the reason why Jesus said, go ahead and throw the net off the right side and allow them to catch all those fish is he wanted them to understand that what God can provide goes beyond what we think are the normal circumstances of life. It goes beyond good luck and good fortune. It goes beyond even logic. It wasn't logical that they would catch all those fish on the right side and nothing for the whole night on the left side. It wasn't logical. But God is able to provide what we need under any circumstances. And that was the lesson. And though we, we often go fishing, we go fishing through, through life trying to find some source, whether it's ministry or career or family or possessions, we go through life and we could go around this room right now and start, start right here and say, let's all stand up and, and say, where are we fishing for life and significance and security? Maybe, maybe we'll do it now. But every one of us have some pursuit of choice where we try to find that sense of who am I and what am I for. And I'm sure Peter, when this occurred, when all of a sudden he couldn't catch anything in his, in his, in his area of competency, he was thinking, why, why would God let this happen? Have you ever wondered why God was letting something... Why is God letting my refrigerator break now? Doesn't he understand how much I don't have in my bank account? Why is God causing this to happen or allowing this to happen with my children? Why is God allowing this to happen in my health? Why is God not giving me that raise? Why is God giving that other guy that raise? We constantly are wondering, why is God letting this happen? I'm sure Peter wondered that too. Why would he do this? What is God there for? What is he good at? What is he good for? And therein lies the problem. We don't understand what God is there for. We don't understand what he's good at. And what God is good at is giving us a sense of identity, a sense of significance, a sense of purpose from and because of who he is. He is the source of your life and peace and hope. He's the source of a sense of security and 
identity and value. And that's what he's good at. Providing it. And he's good at helping us and reminding us that we're not going to get it from the things of this world. And when all of a sudden, like he was doing with the apostles, he holds a mirror up and he basically stands on the sideline of our life and says, how is it working for you? Did he catch anything? He's not doing it to just rub it in. He's doing it because he wants us to get it. To get that I'm not going to suck life out of the things of this world. See, we think God is supposed to fix this world and its circumstances to provide us with security and identity. He's supposed to keep my refrigerator running. He's supposed to make sure that I have money in my bank account when I need it. He's supposed to make sure that my kids are doing well, my marriage is doing well, my friends like me. He's supposed to fix the problems so I can feel okay. But what God is good at is helping us to abandon our pursuit of those things in this world so we can find what we need insofar as peace and security, value, identity, and hope. So we can find it for him, from Him. Let's, let's finish up here. John chapter 21, verse 7. Then the disciple that Jesus loved, that's how John refers to himself, the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. I mean, I don't know whether he, they couldn't see him because of fog or because Jesus was appearing in some resurrected body. But they, John, he picked up, okay, I, this has Jesus' fingerprints all over it, you know. No fish, too many fish to almost pull in. So John says to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, and he jumped into the water, and he headed to shore. The others stayed in the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only uh, about 100 yards from shore. So Peter, who was impulsive, and he was impulsive, went fishing and, and turned in his apostle's badge, but he was just as impulsive when he realized, oh, there's Jesus. I just need to be with him. I need to connect to him. That's the problem. I didn't, I, I, I didn't know how to connect to him. I didn't know where he went. I didn't know what was going to happen. He just dives off the boat. He's not going to wait till they you know, sail or, or row into to shore. He just jumps in the, in the water and swims to Jesus. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over the charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and, and dragging the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. And none of the disciples dared ask, uh, to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. I mean, among other things, I, I believe what Jesus is, is trying to show him is, 
Listen, Peter, I haven't changed. The resurrection and my soon-to-be glorification and returning to the Father, the fact that I'm, I've taken on a new form, it's no longer a, a physical body that you can touch and, and, and things have changed. I am there for you. I see you. I know your need. I desire to care for you and to nurture you. And I see what you need and I can provide it. You know, Jesus was there, and the first thing he does, seeing their angst and seeing their fear and seeing their insecurity, he says, come, hey, I, I've made breakfast. You know, Peter's saying, you know, did you make me the pancakes with the, you know, with the blueberry eyes and the smile? I mean, Jesus wanted them to see that he saw their need and their concern, and he recognizes their insecurity, and he hadn't changed. The resurrection of Christ does not change even though we can't see him in, in a way that, that seems as tangible as if he was able to walk with us. It, it's less secure for us to try to learn how to connect to an invisible God who's omniscient and omnipresent. His heart towards us is as a father to children. He sees us, he knows us, and he cares for us. He was saying to Peter, I don't change. Whether I'm on the earth or whether I'm in heaven, I'm available. And I draw near to you. And I alone can meet your needs in a way that nothing in this world can meet them. Are you willing to lay the nets down? Are you willing to not try to fish in this world? Are you willing to learn how to connect to a risen Christ? Are you willing to learn how to connect to a God who, though invisible, bids us to draw near and is just as available? But what happened next is just the, the, the cherry on top of the whatever. Verse 15, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, I think he sort of, they eat breakfast and then he says, Peter, come here. And they, they take a walk. He says, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think he was pointing at the fish in the net. Peter, do you love me more than you love fishing? You know, and, and of course the answer was yes. He wasn't fishing because he just, he just had a hankering to be around smelly fish. He loved fishing because it was a source of security. It was his competency. It was what he looked to to give him, give him a sense of peace. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord Peter replied, you know I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus would ask the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Y'all see what was going on there? Peter had gone fishing because he thought he was going to be incompetent as an apostle, 
Maybe he thought that he had disqualified himself or that Jesus wouldn't even want him anymore because he denied him three times. So three times Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And he wanted not just to hear it for himself. He wanted Peter to hear and say, yes, Lord, I love you. And three times, just like the three denials, Peter said, Jesus said to Peter, then go and be an apostle. Go and feed my sheep. Go and tend to my lambs. You failed. You are going to fail. But I don't withdraw my love. I don't withdraw my purposes that I have for your life. I walk with you and I'm faithful to you even when you are not faithful to me. Nothing's changed. The resurrection, though God ascends into heaven, he's not seen like he was seen before. We may not like the fact that we have to figure out how to connect to an invisible God, but his availability is sure. And if there are those of us who are willing to have that same at least in part, nature that Peter had, where we say, Lord, where you are, I want to dive in and find you. Wherever you are, if I'm able to draw close to you, I'll I'll toss everything else aside and figure out how to come close to you. If we are willing to take on that character that, that Peter had, that just drives us to pursue him. And continually grow in our ability to connect to him, the invisible God, but the resurrected and living God who is not in some tomb in Jerusalem, but has risen from the dead. If we're willing to connect to him and grow in our ability to connect to him, what we need for security and identity and significance and purpose and hope and peace is able to be fully obtained. And that's what God is looking for. So here we are on Easter Sunday. Coming before a resurrected Christ. Coming before someone who is available. Who sees us and knows us. And who says, if you pursue me. If you, if you lay aside your nets if you stop going fishing for things in this world to give you identity, you will find that I have what you need. Jesus said, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is just saying to his children, he's saying to the world, I'm the source of life. Who wants to pursue me and avoid going fishing? I'm going to stand up. Here's how I want to end today. You know, undoubtedly in a group this size, there are individuals here who have never, (laughs) never taken the dive into into the deep waters. You've never initially said, okay, I am going to pursue a life where I can find life from God. And you're fishing in various places. And I want to give an opportunity for you to just say, Jesus, I don't know how this looks. I don't know how it works. But I want to begin to find my life, my identity from you. And there may be many here today who have 
at one point in your life turn to Jesus, but you recognize you've gone fishing. <laughs> You're trying to find a sense of value from your career, from a hobby, from family, from, from good things, but you're trying to find life apart from God, and it's always tenuous. It always can slip through your fingers. I'm going to just simply pray a simple prayer out loud, and if it is appropriate and if it fits, I want you, whether it's for the first time or for the 101st time, to again say, Jesus, I lay down the things of this world as a source of finding security and significance. And I turn once again to you. You ready for that? Why don't we all close our eyes and bow our heads. Just pray with me out uh, in your heart as I pray out loud. Something like this. Jesus, today, I, I, I say yes to you. I say I... I Choose to believe that you are the only giver of life and peace and hope. Jesus, I choose today to lay down those counterfeit ways that I've tried to find significance in this world. I lay down the counterfeit ways where I've tried to find hope Lord, I, I'm sure I may pick that net up again. I may go fishing again. But won't you come? Tap me on the shoulder. And once again, call me to turn back around to you. Jesus, come and be my life. Be my source. I surrender to you this morning. In Jesus' name. Now, won't you keep your heads bowed and keep your eyes closed? And if you prayed that prayer this morning, particularly if you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, or maybe you prayed it once again, having yielded yourself to Jesus, just, just to acknowledge that to God and, and to me just by lifting your hand. Just raise your hand if you prayed that prayer. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. You can put your hands down. Here's how I want to finish this morning. Rather than calling people, as we often do, to come up front to make some exchange with God, let's end with celebration. Are you game? Let's just end by celebrating the fact that the resurrected Christ is available. He draws near to us no different than he did in the Gospels. He is knowable, and he can provide what we do. Let's just celebrate as we finish up this morning. Pam, why don't you go ahead and lead us in one final song.
Jesus, we just acknowledge that you are a giver of life, that you alone can provide what we need. Lord, we thank you that you no longer walk this earth because Jesus, now you reign. You are all places, all the time. You continue to be all powerful. Jesus, we turn to you today. Come, draw near to us, even as we, we turn to you. Provide us, Lord, what this world can't provide, what we cannot provide for ourselves. We love you. We welcome you into our lives. We welcome you into our marriages. We welcome you into our, our jobs, into our homes. Come, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Let me remind you before you leave, sign up for the men's conference. You do that at the table out there. Don't forget to sign up for and get tickets for the lasagna dinner. Have a wonderful celebration of Easter. God bless you.